Greetings, Ragbag Alliance. Please consider supporting this podcast by buying one or more of my books, A History of Sarcasm, 100 and Everything I Am. Even if you've read them all already, buy them for someone else and spread the word. They're really good books. All the details at frankburton.co.uk. If you fancy getting something else free of charge, I highly recommend the Ragbag Rambler video series. It really is one of the best things I've ever done. If you like this podcast, you would definitely like the Ragbag Rambler. Again, the only place you can see these videos is at frankburton.co.uk. I'm not on social media. I'm not on YouTube. This is all pretty much all under the radar and I think that's a good thing. I think this is like our little secret. But also, if you could tell everyone that you know about it, that too would be great. Cheers. Welcome to Rag Bag. My name's Frank Burton. How are you today? Good? We have some great things lined up for you. An incredible guest. He's a poet. He's a novelist. He is a genius, without a doubt. Fred Voss is on the show. So Fred Voss will be with us in the second half of the show. I can't even begin to explain to you how much of a positive influence Fred's work has been on my own writing and no doubt on many others too. He's worked as a machinist in various factories over many years and he's written about his experiences and the people he's met in such a vivid and impeccably precise way. I honestly think he's one of the best writers in the world and it's an honour to have him on the podcast. Here is one of the things he's going to be saying to me. There's a real macho culture, super masculine. Sometimes it's almost like a jail kind of culture, you know, as far as guys being tough with each other. And so I, there's always, I've always kind of wondered, uh, like people will kind of joke about, you know, you think that guy will ever come in here and walk in with a machine gun and shoot everybody, you know? And it's kind of like, yeah, that's funny, but it's not really funny, you know? <laughs> so, but if it did, I guess I'd write about it, you know? So check that out later. Let's get some shout-outs done. You know what? Seeing as we got a poet on this week, I better read this one out. Sammy Davis Sr. has been in touch. Is that your actual name? I'll take your word for it. Sammy Davis Sr. says, Hi Frank, I liked that thing you said a few weeks ago about the marketing guru from Zurich. I agree, it's a pleasing combination of words. I've been spotting other great combinations of words myself recently. The other day, my wife asked me to wrap up a takeaway lunch and I found myself calling back to her, where are those sandwich bags that we used to have? Now I can't stop saying it. Where are those sandwich bags that we used to have? It's like a line from a song, says Sammy. Says Sammy. <laughs> That's not me saying that. That's Sammy saying, says Sammy. <laughs> Quoting himself in the third person. It's intriguing when people do that, isn't it? Frank Burton is intrigued. But I know what you mean, Sammy. It's <laughs> I know what you mean, Sammy. It's a simple sentence, all very basic, but there is something rather musical about it. Where are those sandwich bags that we used to have? New catchphrase, possibly? Speaking of new catchphrase, Kilroy in Montreal says, Frank... I like it when you say something slightly strange and then say, new catchphrase. Maybe new catchphrase should be your new catchphrase. 
I don't think that's going to work, Kilroy. I appreciate the suggestion. I think my use of the word catchphrase is perhaps a little misleading. What I'm really trying to do is come up with a new thing that enters everyday conversation. And at some point, people forget where it came from. Like everyone forgets that the expression, how do you like those apples, comes from the film Good Will Hunting, a film about a guy called Will Hunting, who is good. Or something. And I am aware that Burt Reynolds is catching on. I appreciate your efforts dropping that one into conversation. Make sure you do the nod when you say the name Burt Reynolds. But unfortunately, that one isn't going to give me what I'm looking for. In years to come, if someone types the words a stitch in time saves nine into a search engine, it will come up with the name of the film that that line is taken from, Reservoir Dogs. I'm only joking, obviously not all common phrases can be attributed to films from the 1990s. But the point I'm making is, if you type the words Burt Reynolds in, you'll end up with, you know, the actor Burt Reynolds. No mention of Ragbag or me or anything. Shot myself in the foot with that one, didn't I? The only thing for it is for me to get to a position where I'm much more famous than the actual Burt Reynolds. Help me out, listeners. Spread the word about the podcast. We can do this together. Let's do this right now. Now, I've had a few requests for medical referrals. As announced in last week's episode, this is a service I'm offering at the moment. Glenn in Aberdeen says... Frank, it would be really great if you could make me a referral for an MRI scan. There's nothing wrong with me. I just like the noises those machines make. They're really interesting. Also, I could use a little bit of alone time. An MRI machine seems like a great place to go and have a chill out. Lovely. Yes, I like that idea, Glenn. I've made that referral for you. Amelia in Somerset, I received your email detailing all of your various symptoms. I hope you're okay. I do recommend seeing an actual doctor. This service of mine is really just for people like Glenn who fancy a trip to a hospital as a break from their routine. Malcolm has been in touch to say, I know you seem to think that impersonating your doctor and stealing his login details for the NHS intranet system isn't a criminal offence, but it's actually a serious crime. Thanks, Malcolm. I appreciate you offering me your opinion on this matter. All opinions are most welcome. Keep those referral requests coming, guys. How do you like those apples? Burt Reynolds Reservoir Dogs Burt Reynolds I'm only joking obviously Burt Reynolds I'm only joking obviously Shot myself in the foot with that one didn't I? An MRI machine seems like a great place to go and have a chill out Chill out Chill out I'm only joking obviously Chill out An MRI machine Shot myself in the foot with that one didn't I? Chill out. Blowing my mind. Absolutely blowing my mind. Blowing my mind. Absolutely blowing my mind. Blowing my mind. Absolutely blowing my mind. Chill out.
An MRI machine seems like a great place to go and have a chill out. An MRI machine seems like a great place to go and have a chill out. Now it's time for this week's guest. Let's just get straight into it. Fred Voss is a prolific poet and novelist, as well as being a machinist of many years. He joined me on the phone from his home in Long Beach, California, and it was really nice to talk to him. As I've said, his work has had a profound effect on me as a writer and as a fan of great writing. Let's just hear one of his poems and then we can hear from the man himself. Making America Strong We work nights as machine operators at Goodstone Aircraft Company, where we made parts for the Air Force's new bomber, the K-20. In the parking lot before work and during lunch break, we drank and smoked dope and snorted chemicals. At work, we wore sunglasses and danced around our machines. We picked up bomber parts and blew through them like as if they were saxophones. We stalked each other with squirt guns, screaming and laughing and staggering. We played with the overhead crane, hoisting each other's toolboxes to the ceiling. We unscrewed knobs from machine handles and threw them around like baseball. Our foreman snuck drinks from the bottle of vodka in his toolbox and paced about the shop in a daze. We respected our foreman. He'd given us some valuable advice. Whatever you do, he warned us over and over, don't join the Air Force and fly a K-20. It's going to crash. Oh, you saw uh, that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, um, inspiring or whatever about your um, what they thought was epilepsy, right? Yeah, yeah. I was. I had that diagnosis, and I was on lots of drugs and things like that. And then I was re-diagnosed with this other thing, which is called um, non-epileptic attack syndrome, uh, which is uh, yeah. And I uh, came off all the drugs, and I've stopped having seizures. It's it's kind of a, a miracle cure, you know. I haven't gone through anything like that, but I mean, a lot of people go through something, you know, but like going into the uh, factory world with my background, which was nobody in the family would do that, except my, my father did once when he was young for just a, a little while work in a factory. That was kind of something I had to adjust to, to figure out, you know, before it drove me crazy. You've obviously been in that world for a, for a long time now. How can I have, how long has it been? Uh, let's see. 70, 1976, I went into my first uh, factory. So, 44 years. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's long term. Yeah. And now I could retire, but I'm not because I, um, I like working. I, I like uh, writing, and the two go together now. So, in a weird way... It all worked out in a way I would have never expected. I never planned. I just went into a factory to survive at first. I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know. I didn't know how to write poetry yet. And it just all ended up working out. Yeah, this is what I wanted to ask you about, because it seems to me that you're a really great example of a writer who's found their thing. You know, you have a particular style that's yours and a, a particular thing that you write about, and you've been doing that for a long time, as we've said. So I was wondering kind of how yeah. that started. How, how did you figure out that that's what you were good at, and how did you figure out that that was your thing? Well, first, I, I'd been trying to write poetry as far as, where, where my poetic voice came to me, it happened suddenly uh, after my father died. About six months after he was dead, I uh, wrote a poem inspired by, by his death. I'd been writing novels for seven years and short novels. So I'd gotten very uh, narrative and concrete 
the last one was about uh, working in a factory, which someone suggested I that I would could write a good novel about that. When so I did. Anyway, this uh, poem just came to me. So I I got all these narrative lines that were, but they weren't um, a narrative exactly. They were they were narrative sentences, and then I. I uh, started writing them down as fast as I could, and, and then all of a sudden I rearranged them, and they turned into something else. And that's kind of where I got my voice, uh, kind of a mixture of a narrative poem about my dad's death, and then a kind of a pre-association of thoughts, different um, images and, and thoughts about his dying. From then on, I, I could write poems. I'd, I'd never been able to write poems that people could understand. I, I, honestly, I, I didn't understand them uh, exactly. I was reaching for something. A lot of young poets, I think, do that, trying to be T.S. Eliot or Charles Bukowski or whatever. So anyway, I had my voice. So I started writing poems. Now these poems made sense. They were concrete and narrative, yet they were poetic because... They were like a juxtaposition of different images and and, and thoughts in, in uh, narrative sentences, but that weren't uh, a narrative story. So I started writing poems about uh, the machine shop, and there was this magazine called the Wormwood Review, who was the, this magazine was the main publisher of Charles Bukowski for decades, his favorite magazine. And I was a big Bukowski fan. Uh, he'd written about work, of course, yeah. along with a lot of other things. Uh, so I sent a bunch of poems to the editor, Marvin Malone, not expecting anything necessarily. And uh, he sent back a very encouraging letter saying, I think you will survive in literature. I wasn't sure what that meant. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> You mean I'm not going to die? Is that what you mean? So, <laughs> yeah, so he, he didn't take any, but he sent me one of his magazines and told me to send him more. So I sent him more, and he took the, all the ones that were about work and then the other ones that were about other parts of my life, people I ran into or was hanging with, uh, he didn't take. So I thought, well, he likes this stuff about work. So I wrote more and more, and he kept taking it, taking it. You know, and then he did special features on me, and... Uh, so that was the really the launching of me uh, that way. And I uh, just, uh, well, then a professor at the university in Long Beach, uh, Gerald Lachlan, told me to uh, send it to uh, England. He he knew uh, this magazine that John Osborne was editing, Bête Noir. So I, I sent him a few poems, and he published one. And then uh, I had this special section that Wormwood had published with 42 poems all about the factory, and I sent that to John Osborne, and then he reprinted the whole thing in his magazine. And that led to uh, Blood Axe publishing me, and I did a tour. So I was off, and that was a, a pretty big surprise to me. Like, I remember seeing the review came out in the London Review of Books, you know, and I thought, my God, you know, they like me. <laughs> Then there's the whole story. I mean, there there's my work career, which was difficult for decades as far as getting laid off, having jobs that were pretty terrible, and all of that, you know. And, and but my writing continued steadily. Like you say, I'd found my subject, I'd found my voice, and it was just a matter of developing it. Then my my wife Joan Smith, who's a very widely published, respected poet herself, and known in the UK too. She started, uh, I would read my poems to her on the weekend in the morning. And uh, she would. She was an editor also of a magazine that ran for like 40 years in Long Beach. So she helped me expand. And I, I just found as the decades went by how this subject matter and my, my writing voice I just kept, expanding and going on you know uh there didn't there wasn't a, an end to it and so i just kept doing it to where i i find it very uh it makes me very happy and it's work but it's i mean 
the factory's work and the writing's work, but it's all uh, well worth it. Do you find it easier now? Is it easier than it used to be? Uh, I have a, I have a good job I've had for 15 years now. It took me till I got to be 52 years old to get the job I really wanted, you know. So that's been good. And, uh, you know, it's uh, machining is difficult, but the, but the whole uh, environment there where I work now is, is good. So that's easier. Uh, I, when I was young, I really had, had some rough years where I was, uh, well, I, I started out in a steel mill where um, I've written about that. The, the veterans that had been there 20 years, they were, you know, in, in their 40s or 50s, uh, they were shaking, you know, their fingers, their jaws trembled all the time from the, from the noise and the stress. I learned, I learned the trade there, but it was a culture shock was, a was intense. I, I was brought up to go to college, you know, I did go to college, but I mean, I was brought up to get a, a doctor or a lawyer or a professor white collar job, or maybe a scientist, uh, you know, not a machinist and with, with people that hadn't graduated from high school, a lot of them. And I, and I was working, I worked for, after the steel mill, I, um, I worked there almost three years, couldn't take it anymore. Uh, and got out of there and got into aerospace and that was great. They paid more money and it was a lot easier. There was a union. There's a big difference with a union, but then they laid me off Then they lay you off, which is generally what would happen to people. And back in the eighties, you could get another job. You get laid off, you go to another big aerospace company and they hire you and, or you collect unemployment, you know, but, uh, for one stretch there, I went two years without any work except four months. I worked in one place and, uh, I got real thin, <laughs> you know, but I still was writing novels. Uh, uh, then I worked, uh, for instance, more recently, about 20 years ago, I was, I got a job in downtown LA in a, in a job shop, they call it where they just, it's not a company that makes parts. They just do work for different companies. They're just strictly a a machine shop and uh, those are the hardest places to work that that was pretty hellish i it was it was in, a very dramatic place to work one of the guys had had been in i think it was san quentin for murdering somebody um uh, but they hired him back <laughs> good for him you know stuff like that that was pretty that was very rough you know but then i found this company and so it, it is easier now. You know, the writing never really gets easy. It's all, it's always like when you sit down over the blank white page, it's, uh, it's almost for a while. It's like you never wrote before, but I mean, you, you do know what to expect and you, you wait and it happens, you know, but still, you don't know, is this the, is this the morning when I've written my last poem, you know? <laughs> And that's ne that's never easy, but it is. I do know what I'm doing more, and I have confidence, and it and it works. So it is easier that way. And do the um, the negative experience that you've had with work, in in particular the the really bad jobs that you're talking about. I mean, I, I mean, did you get some good writing out of those experiences? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, that that made me. Uh, Getting laid off made me aware of the suffering that the working people go through and the, um, the reality of what can happen when you're on unemployment and it's uh, going to run out soon and you start thinking about living in an alley. Things like that changed me quite a bit. Then, uh, like working in this place in downtown L.A. showed me how, how tough it could get on the job. Um, made me more, well, they're, now they're, they're calling it socialistic, you know, democratic socialist. That's what I am now. If they got to put a label on me, but, um, made me angry and I, I could see how really rough it is for uh, so many people. And it's gotten worse people in factories, people in 
menial jobs or, I mean, I have a skill, but it's gotten worse all the time I've been in the, in the work world, in the factory world, gradually it's gotten worse and worse. And it seems like in a way this uh, pandemic is like, uh, well, it's, it's, it's exposed how bad it is because, because uh, all these people that live paycheck to paycheck, that can't save more than $500 that that can barely make the rent or that have to live uh, four or five people in, a, in one room. And they're working 50, 60, uh, 70 hours a week. You know, they're, they're really in trouble now with this pandemic. And, and then we don't have the healthcare. We don't have, we don't have government. We don't have science. <laughs> I mean, you know, and a lot of it started with Reagan cynically, politically playing to the to the uh, fundamental religious side and the the extreme conservative side of the voting public. And it's just and 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 breaking the unions. I think the only way working people can have real power where they can have a decent life. And there can be some kind of equality is with unions because uh, I just don't know that there there could be other ways in the future, but uh, that's all we have now it seems like. So they've been beaten down so much that those people are, are in dire shape. You know, I'm I'm lucky I've got I'm okay uh, financially. I don't I don't want a lot of money. I never did. You know, and I feel. A lot of pride in what I do. I don't. I don't need a white shirt, you know, <laughs> to to be somebody. Blood and poetry. Dostoevsky is riding in my car, beard to his chest. He understands how I walked out on a PhD to stand on a concrete floor and make minimum wage in front of a fiery furnace. He spent four years in a Siberian prison camp with murderers and rapists for being a political radical. And we roll into work and walk to our machines. He understands Robert over on machine number 29 with his hand in a cast from punching it through the car window of a man who cut him off on the highway last week. How Robert came within a hair's breadth of killing that man. How glad Robert is to punch a button, slamming a two-ton press down onto a tool steel die all day, instead of sit in a prison cell. How glad I am to be out on this dirty concrete floor, as far away from a PhD office as I can get. Out where my soul can spread its wings and fly in these poems like Dostoevsky's did when he had that holy fool Sonia bend down to kiss the earth under her feet to show that murderer Raskolnikov what it meant to believe in God. Raskolnikov turned himself in. I got a job. Dostoevsky winks at me as he chews on a piece of dried meat and picks up a wrench. And I look over at Robert as he straddles a two-ton bending machine and pounds on it with a 50-pound hammer, keeping the blood off his hands, as Dostoevsky and I feel the poetry flow in our veins. Your uh, recent poems, I've, I've been reading um, the ones that are online, it's kind of interesting how you're bringing in aspects of the wider world and kind of recent events. You've been writing about the pandemic and... Black Lives Matter, for example, and it seems kind of different to your earlier work where perhaps you were more focused on like the inner world of the factory and the individual's experience of working there rather than kind of the wider world. Uh, am, am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I, I have to keep evolving. And um, so I don't I don't want to uh, repeat myself. But, you know, I mean, you, a writer has his subject and he and he'll focus on it. So you do repeat. But you want to keep growing, you know, and, uh, my style has grown. I think, you know, it's more, um, imagistic and universal. I, I try to mix in a sort of 
you want to call it pantheistic or Whitman-like view of of life and the earth and the universe in in with the work world somehow. That's part of it. And then that brings in politics and the wider world uh, somehow related to the specific uh, concrete scene of the the machine shop. It all it all can relate. It seems like so. Yeah, I'm 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 more political too because like after what I experienced in the job shop in downtown LA, I I feel more more uh, concern or anger uh, or uh, dedication, you know, to writing about things that are more political or wider, have wider um, ramifications. I mean, also, I think it's um, while you're writing about these things, also you're kind of keeping it kind of grounded within the recognisable world that you have been writing about for many years. So it's still sort of within that kind of work environment. Yeah, I don't want to be writing essays or philosophy or or just my thoughts looking out a window. You know, what I'm lucky with is, is having this uh, this work world that I've experienced, that I am experiencing, that I can ground it with that in a narrative sort of way. Like I'm there at the workbench with my wrench, and uh, but I'm, I'm thinking about this or that and how it relates to those guys over there, and, and then this happens, and that's an example of some ideas I have, but it all is grounded in, in the concrete, uh, the world of the, of the machine shop and the work that I'm doing. So that keeps it very narrative in that sense, but yet I've expanded it to where it's visionary or much more philosophical, taking in, um, uh, trying to take in as much as I can that I feel is relevant to being a working man. That's been satisfying. I keep being inspired to write, which is what I like. Great. And um, I mean, because the work is drawn from real life experiences and um, it seems to me that everything that you write is kind of recognizably a real thing. Um, so I, I was just wondering if there's anything in particular, any strange experiences that you've had that you would like to write about, but then you maybe think, well, no one's going to believe that that happened. Um, <laughs> does that happen to you? No, I don't think so. I, I pretty much uh, write about everything that I think is um, that, that, that is of note or that people will understand or relate to. That's a kind of, it's a kind of like a microcosm so if it's something that I think is that people can relate to, that relates to their lives, that they could understand, I'll write about it. And if, of course, if it's interesting, you know, like if somebody gets in a fight or if some boss is acting crazy or firing people, that's something I might want to write about. It's dramatic. It's, it's important as far as what it says about being a working man. As far as I mean, that I'd be af- afraid that people wouldn't believe it. I never, I haven't thought of of that. I mean, if they didn't believe it, that's okay. But if I thought it was worth writing about, I would write about it, I'd, or I'd try. And sometimes you write, and it doesn't come out very good. You just don't know until you write it, you know. But just about anything. A lot of times, you think I think uh, something's not interesting or worth writing about, and then and then it turns into something. But yeah, your question, I, you know, one of the things, you know, is the undercurrent of violence, uh, which has gone through my whole 44 years as far as uh, this, there's a real macho culture, super masculine. Sometimes it's almost like a jail kind of culture, you know, uh, as far as guys being tough with each other. And so I, there's always, I've always kind of wondered, uh, like people will kind of joke about, you know, you think that guy will ever come in here and walk in with a machine gun and shoot everybody, you know? And it's kind of like, yeah, that's funny, but it's not really funny, you know? So, but if it did, I guess I'd write about it, you know? But um, I don't think it'll happen. 
<laughs> yeah, well, hopefully not. Yeah. Uh, you know, um... I've seen, uh, you know, people get get uh, angry, you know, but that's normal. Um, but it can be difficult. I've tried to write about all that. I think I have pretty realistically. I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to make up something that then I think maybe people wouldn't believe it and they would deserve not to believe it if I said somebody stabbed this guy or that and, you know, if I made that up, I wouldn't want to do that. If I was writing a novel, that's different, you know. In in your book, Making America Strong, you've got the, the story about the guys doing acid and then operating the machinery and stuff like that. Is, is that based on real events or is that just a, an idea that you had? Uh, no, I heard... I heard about that happening. I mean, in the in the era when people were taking acid, although they still do, but it's kind of a little different culture now. But um, I heard stories, yeah, about, I heard one story. I think I wrote a poem about it. Somebody had dropped acid and gone to, and they were in the machine shop working. And then they got more, you know, intoxicated more and more. And all of a sudden, Let's see if I remember right. Uh, the guy just started working harder and harder and harder. And then he finally just started running around his machine and he ran around his machine or kept running around his machine. And then he took off and ran out the door, you know, and got in his car and left. Right. And I don't know what happened after that. But, uh, you know, when I when I um, I did LSD a little bit and back in the. Uh, early 70s, you know, and um, people would just kind of try to do weird stuff. And it was a strange. So I thought it would, uh, I mean, they would see, you know, like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go see if I can be a vacuum cleaner salesman and sell vacuums when I'm on acid, you know, just crazy stuff like that. So I, it, I, I thought of it just uh, like, what would that, that would be an interesting dramatic situation. If they did, if some guys did that, and what would happen, you know? But and generally, when I wrote my novels, I just have an idea like that, and I never knew what was going to happen. So I was kind of surprised as I wrote it, which which I liked that, you know. For me, it made it seemed to make the more the writing more more real or suspenseful. So no, I mean, I never actually was in a machine shop where somebody was on acid that I know of, but. You know, people back in the 70s and 80s were doing drugs and they would come to work either still on a drug or maybe they, and then they would fire people for dealing drugs, you know, at, at work. So I, I, that was something I, I made up, you know, but as with anything I would write with my novels too, I wanted it to be definitely plausible that it could happen, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it it definitely reads like that. It reads like something that that could happen, and that it, it could it could be an entirely autobiographical account that you've written. And um, I mean, I I had a, a similar experience actually. I was uh, like years and years ago, I was working for a, like a leaflet distribution company in Manchester, and there were these young lads who worked on the in like in the van with me and driving around, and they would used to, well, they they would smoke weed just routinely like yeah. during the day. But, yeah, um, of course. Yeah. And like one one day, uh, this guy brought some acid into <laughs> into work with him, and the, him him and these uh -huh. two other guys just took the acid. It was like ten o'clock in the morning. I don't know why they were doing it, but I don't know why they'd chosen yeah. to um, that moment in their lives to uh, do that. But yeah, and then they, yeah, they, they, they just carried on. They just carried on. They 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 did their shift and then they left. <laughs> well, um, I remember with uh, people that that did uh, acid. Uh, it was part of it, you know, was the experience. Uh, like if they if they thought that they were opening themselves up to some kind of reality or, uh, you know, well, what if I did it, you know, walking down main street or, you know, that kind of thing. It can yeah. get pretty, pretty crazy. Like almost like an experiment, you know, like a scientific experiment. And of course they're doing it to themselves, you know, and it's pretty, it was pretty, um, hazardous if you, 
you know, socially, like especially doing it at work. I guess maybe those guys didn't care if they got fired or I don't know, you know. Like the guys in the novel, they, they're kind of, that one guy especially sped up with working in that place to begin with, you know. That's part of why they don't care or he doesn't care. Working night shift, it seemed like people did more stuff because uh, night shift's difficult and maybe they they thought, uh, well, if I was at home, I'd be getting messed up, so I'll do it at work. <laughs> <laughs> cool, there you go. I was going to move on and ask you about your um, routine for writing because I'm interested to know kind of how you fit your writing routine around your work schedule and also if you have like a system for like note taking like if you have an idea in the middle of a day do you kind of jot it down or do you kind of memorize it for later on no i memorize it i uh i have a like a list every week i don't write during the week so the ideas come to me when i'm at work and i uh i may i go over them in my head i'll have like maybe usually from five to eight or nine ideas like i seem to get and um so I will I will go over them in my head like a list, you know, to memorize them. And on, on the weekend is when I write. Saturday and Sunday, I'll get up early in the morning because I I like silence to write. So there's nobody, no TVs going, nobody talking, you know, in the apartments around me. So then I'll pick one of these ideas and I'll think about it and I'll I'll pick one maybe. Oh no, that one. That one doesn't seem that good. Oh, then what about this other one? So then I'll start writing one, and I'll write two. I'll write one Saturday morning and one Sunday morning. Maybe it takes me, uh, on the average, maybe an hour and a half or an hour to write a poem. Uh, just have to wait, you know, for the lines to come to me, and then kind of get the ball rolling with a poem, and then it, and then it takes off. And sometimes I'll have to it for quite a while with nothing coming to me that's that's when it gets a little tough then all the um all the all the everything in my mind you know images will flood in so when i get a, a door open or a, when i find a path you know with the uh poem I'll, it'll just kind of explode some a lot of times that's where the imagery comes in the, uh, the list of images and pre-associations. And then the narrative part will, will often be, an idea will be spurred by what somebody did in the shop, in the machine shop, that made me think of this idea, and I'll remember that. Maybe it's about a person specifically, or it's just about something like singing in the shop or, you know, Somebody will be singing and it'll make me think of an idea. Oh, that'd be a good poem, you know. And then on the weekend, I, I'll write it out and see if it, it always turns into something when I write it. It usually always turns into something I, I didn't expect. I don't want to uh, expect it. I just get an idea that it'll get it going. Is there a lot of stuff that you kind of reject, or like, you, do you write something and say, uh, "No, that's not good enough. I'm not keeping that," or uh, have you got a, a good level of quality yeah. control? Yeah, once in a while, it doesn't happen hardly ever anymore. But well, you know, maybe every tenth poem or twentieth poem, I'll be, I'll write like. Uh, maybe a quarter of it, what would be a poem, and I'll, I'll just talk, set it aside and start over on something else. Doesn't happen very often anymore, but if it, if it really isn't inspiring me, and I don't feel like it's interesting or that it's going anywhere, I'll just set it aside and do something else. I learned to do that, because otherwise I, I would just waste my time and get more and more frustrated trying to force the poem to happen you know so if you just like let it go and then try something else that's what i'll do but usually see i'll just sit there usually sometimes it, it just comes out and writes pretty much writes itself steadily without much problem but often i have to 
I'll write a line or two or five or six lines and then I'll stop and I'll wait, you know, and then I wait for something to come to me. And that, that's the hard part. So yeah, I have to know when it when it seems like it's a oh, this poem is hopeless, then I'll toss it aside. But then I have to be persistently wait if I think something will come to me, you know, not give up. Right. Okay. I, I guess if if something has got something about it, but it's not quite working out, then you can persist with that idea, and eventually it will it will come together. I guess. Yeah, uh, it'll come together exactly. It usually comes together often at the end. Say it'll come have come together, and then I'll wait. I'll wait for the end if it if it doesn't just come uh, as with the flow of writing the poem. I'll have I'll have written say ninety percent of the poem, and then I'll think, okay, I gotta have a good a really good ending on this that'll do the poem justice. It'll sum it up, be the a good ending, and then I'll I'll try to get that that'll usually always come to me sooner or later sometimes i have to wait for that 10 or 15 minutes and i'll get i'll get an idea no that's not good enough that's not good and then i'll get it and i'll know okay that's it that's the best i can do you know then i read it to my wife <laughs> and what 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 sort of feedback do you get from her well uh she never says that stinks <laughs> you know <laughs> I'm I'm joking. She wouldn't do that, but um, she doesn't want to. She's encouraged. She's my encourager, you know. My uh, she's like my editor, my first editor, and she is a good editor. She'll she'll say, "Oh, that's one of your best poems," you know, if she really likes it. That doesn't say that too often. So I know that she's um, she's not humoring me, you know. <laughs> if she's what she says is honest, so. I value her opinion, but uh, she really does like my work and never gets tired of hearing it. So that's what a writer likes, you know, <laughs> but I listen to her. Sometimes she'll, uh, she'll tell me, oh, you can't say that. She doesn't usually do that. But once in a while, take that out, take that word out, take that line out. Or... Then she gives me ideas sometimes. I had these poems that I wrote about. Uh, her and I where we're called Frank and Jane and she would help me with those quite a bit because she was Jane you know pretty much and uh, if she didn't like Jane saying something sometimes I I would take that out but usually not they were they were supposed to be funny one person said well that's read that poem that shows what a really good marriage is like (laughs) and it was some poem where we're arguing and but it was funny, so, you know, she, she's a big help. To, you know, when you write a poem, you want you want somebody to read it. Before I married her, it was the editor. You know, then you you pick an editor. You know, I, I had some editors that liked my work a lot, and then you send it to them. and But then you have to wait two or three months to find out if they like it or not. This way, I find out the, the very like the next half hour when I, an hour later after I'm done writing it, when we're drinking tea, I'll read it and then I'll know, I get a reaction, you know. So do you read it aloud and she listens to you reading it aloud? Yeah, uh, I like reading aloud and she likes hearing it. When you when you read a poem aloud that you've written or one that you haven't written, well, especially one that you've just written, or, or later after you, maybe you wrote it a few months ago. When you read it out loud, it really doesn't change the poem, but it can change the way the poem hits you, you know, the way you see something in it or you hear it. Something about hearing it makes you aware of the lines and the, and the words more sometimes than just reading it on the page. So I think, yeah, so it's good that I... I read it out loud. I I get an idea of reading it, and she gets an impression that way. She likes my voice. She likes hearing me read. And poets, you know, generally like to hear themselves read. Musicians like to hear themselves play, right? Well, Joan inspired this poem and uh, maybe wrote it through my unconscious. I don't know. So... (laughs) 
so this is for her. And uh, we were in Paris last summer, July, and she's been encouraging me to write a poem about Paris, being in Paris, but I haven't. I think I'm going to, but I haven't yet. And, you know, sometimes it takes a while. So, but anyway, this is uh, based on some of our discussions on, on that topic. <clears throat> Frank almost writes his first poem about Paris. <laughs> Please, Frank, nearly every poem you write has a concrete floor in it, Jane said. <laughs> After Frank reads her his new poem about a machine shop with a concrete floor in it. <laughs> You've got to write about something else, Frank, something not so arduous. Write about our trip last summer to Paris. We saw the Eiffel Tower and original Van Goghs and Cezannes and Notre Dame and boated down the Seine and saw a surrealistic statue of Rambeau, James Joyce's original manuscript of Ulysses at Shakespeare and Company and visited Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> Why don't you write about Paris? Something romantic. But that's such a cliché. <laughs> Everyone who goes to Paris sees Notre Dame and the Louvre and Eiffel Tower and takes boat rides down the Seine and sees Morrison's grave and writes about it. <laughs> if readers want romance, they can read Madame Bovary. <laughs> Let them read Les Miserables. <laughs> no one's ever written about greasy shop rags or piles of metal chips on a concrete machine shop floor the way I have. <laughs> Did Flaubert or Hugo or Baudelaire write about a machinist spitting a sunflower seed over the top of an engine lake? <laughs> <laughs> or riveting a world-class asshole plaque to the inside of his toolbox lid. <laughs> Frank takes a big chug out of his bottle of beer and sticks out his chest like Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> Writers should write what they know, what they live, not cliches of boating down the Seine, ogling art in the, and an Eiffel Tower. Frank... <laughs> Excuse me when I mangle French a little bit. Um, Frank smiles a self-satisfied smile until he sees Jane glaring up at him from her chair like she always does when it's obvious he's full of crap. And Frank sips more beer and remembers their sunset walk alongside the Seine, their fondant au chocolat and champagne at the sidewalk cafe in sight of the Eiffel Tower, the Paris July 8th full moon on his birthday shining into the skylight of their bedroom in their autrement on Rue Bautrelie. After all, Frank does have to admit that it is just possible that for just one poem anyway, to write about lamp-lit, rain-streaked, cobblestone streets and the way the summer sun sparkling between Notre Dame steeples turned Jane's auburn hair to a golden flame could be just a bit more interesting, possibly even more romantic, than a sunflower seed spit over the top of an engine lathe onto a concrete floor and a world-class asshole plaque. Thank you. On the subject of your success in the UK, I mean, um, what what have your experiences been? Because you, you've been over here, right? And you've kind of done uh, readings in the UK and stuff like that. I'm just wondering kind of what, what kind of places you went to and what kind of experiences you had. Uh, yeah, I, it's been really uh, amazing and, and fun. First uh, tour was the kind of the mind blower uh like I, I had, I was featured in Bed Noir magazine, and then um, the All Broad Poetry Festival invited me. Then they invited my wife too, and uh, we were going to go over there together. We went over together. At first, I I read in Hull, which is where the Bed Noir magazine was. It came out of the University of Hull there, edited by John Osborne, 
and uh, got over there extremely jet lagged. You know, went got into Heathrow, took the train out of uh, King's Cross up to Hall. Barely got there in time for the reading, so I had a few beers in John Osborne's kitchen, and then he drives us over to the Queens. I forget the name of the hotel. And it was packed. It was, I don't know how many people were there. Their readings could get up to two or 300. I think there might've been 200, maybe 300 people there. And they were, and it was packed, you know, the floor was filled with people sitting and I was really uh, jet lagged. And um, so after about my third pint of dark beer, I read and that went over real well. There was a long line. I think I sold 50 books. Uh, and then I remember them telling my uh, uh, John and Jules Smith, uh, a professor there that is a has become a good friend of ours, said, "Well, I think this might be the, the highlight of your tour, you know." And oh, Neil Osley was there. He had just published my book, uh, and I guess that turned out to be true. Although the whole tour was was nice, but um, where we still are, Hull is our our home base in England, and. I have quite a, a fan club there. They come oh, out to, to see us. Anyway, we went to, uh, I went to London. I read at the, the uh, Poetry Society. That was, that was a mind blower. Um, yeah, there, there weren't, a, it's a small room. There wasn't a large audience, but you know, Robert Lowell had read there. I, I just really found it hard to believe that I was reading there, but I felt like, uh, yeah, I deserve to read here. So, uh, we went to Albright. That was great. You know, I got to read with a translator of one of my favorite poets. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say it right. Tadeusz Rosevich. He's dead now, but one of a great poet. Uh, all of this is a great honor. We went to Bristol. Then we we all of it on train. We're all we're jet lagged, Joan and I, stumbling around. But it but it was amazing. You know. And then we, we've come back, uh, we've done eight tours in all. We were there last in 2017. I read for the BBC twice, once in the, in the theater in Hall. Simon Armitage read with me. And there was a, um, there was music too. Shane Rhodes, he does Wrecking Ball Press in Hall. He, he, uh, he has a connection with the BBC. And I think it was Ian McMillan that got me on the BBC. The audiences are always especially in, in the North, in Hull, which is, you know, where my main audience is, naturally, where the working people are and the union people. London is much more reserved, and they give a little golf clap, we call it, you know, if you ever watch golf on TV. Anyway, it's like a real subdued clap, you know, polite. But in, but in Hull, though, it's much more exuberant. They laugh. You know, and at the end, uh, sometimes I had one encore, and that's only poetry encore I've had. <laughs> long, long applause. The arts are appreciated in, in England, uh, Europe. Uh, you, you get a lot more money there. In America, you know, uh, I mean, Henry Miller left America and went to Paris, right? Because he knew what a poet, the respect a poet could get in outside of the U.S. Here... Like Leonard Bernstein said uh, about Charles Ives, the classical composer, that there's something vaguely reprehensible about being an artist in America. So going to the UK has been uh, a great uh, experience, you know. I'm known here, but it's not the same. And I'm not in academia. In America, you really have to be in academia to get solid respect, you know, and I'm just not, I, I, I like to go to colleges and read, but I'm not part of that world, you know. I'm more aligned with the beat oral poetry tradition, going back to Whitman in America. The academic side of it gets pretty obscure, pretty incomprehensible sometimes, and pretty dry, you know. You don't have anybody working in a machine shop, you know, uh, writing about it or something on that of that sort. Uh, they're mostly just looking out a window 
you know, I don't mean to be, to put it down. It's just different from what I do. Yes. And I, I think uh, what you do is also kind of underrepresented in the literary world because, you know, there's uh, countless numbers of novels about university professors, for example, because that's what the novelist happens yeah. to do for a living. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's become more and more like that with creative writing workshops and MFA programs. And that's a great outlet, you know, but it does kind of create a a uh, limited world, a kind of bubble, you know. That So I'm lucky, I think I'm lucky, you know, that I went the route I did, giving me that subject matter that's not written about much. So I, I've, you know, my publisher, Blood X, thinks I... Uh, thinks I'm important because I'm writing a poetry about the working man, which I hasn't really, I'm the first one to explore it to the extent that I have. And so that makes me feel good. Like I, I'd like to accomplish something, you know, as far as maybe bringing uh, new light to the, to the working man's life and respect and understanding to it if i could do that then i would feel very happy so that's what i'm trying to do great well no it from from my points of view i think you've you've achieved that and you've achieved that very well and yeah well thank you thank you thank you for listening a million thanks to fred Voss. this has been such a great experience Let's get some more poets and writers on the show. Sounds good to me. Links to Fred's work can be found in the show notes. I highly recommend that you check it all out. Frankburton.co.uk is my website. Buy my books. Watch the video series, The Ragbag Rambler. I will see you very soon. Thomas Truax is on next week. Another legend. Watch out for it. Burt Reynolds. Bag Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.